Let me pray. God, may your strength be on display this very morning uh, as your weak servant stands before other weak servants, all sheep under the chief shepherd, um, knowing that we desperately need you. And we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our ears, give us hearts to believe these things, belief and faith that would last for a lifetime, for it is a gift from you, not superficial faith that we stir up ourselves. Lord, help us to test our hearts even this morning as we consider this text before us. Uh, And I pray that we would all leave either assured of the gift of faith and salvation that you've given to us, or we would leave convicted, convicted of our sin and our need to repent and believe in you once and for all. Uh, We ask and pray these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know what a fair weather fan is? Uh, Or uh, uh, someone who jumps on the bandwagon of their team? Uh, Someone who's a fan only when their team is winning? This one's for you, Grace. Okay, sports analogy for Grace right here. Uh, Fair weather fans are those that only are proud of their team or want to wear their team's colors or their team's hat or, or, or those kinds of things only when their team is doing good, but when their team is doing bad, they don't want anything to do with it. Uh, th- this really shows itself when playoff time comes around, and all of a sudden their team that has been bad for as long as they've known them, Texas Rangers, you know, are finally going to be able to make it to the playoffs and do well. I, I promise there's going to be, the stands are going to be full come playoff time. And now that we have air conditioning and, you know, things like that, that kind of, that does help as well, eliminate some of the fair weather fans. Uh, but but that, that happens. But when times get bad, then they're no longer fans of that team. And this happens in the midst of games sometimes. When in the beginning part of a game, people are cheering on an individual a quarterback, a pitcher, and by the time they throw three interceptions or by the time they have the bases loaded and some people have hit several home runs off them, they're booing them off the field, you know, want them gone. Uh, This happens. And this very thing happens in Jesus' ministry as well. In our passage, in, in the mid, I know it's a lengthy passage and you're thinking, why did Brian pick that kind of lengthy passage on the first Sunday back. Um, but we have to because we need to see uh, both, both verse 30 and 31 as well as verse 59. Look, look at verse 30. After Jesus had declared that he was the light of the world um, and, and that he uh, w- was he uh, who would forgive them of their sins, Uh, It says in verse 30 that he was saying these things, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And in verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So there's great faith showing itself up in verse 30 and 31. And yet at the end of verse 59, I don't know if you heard what Colton read, but it says at the end of our passage, 
So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What's happening there? I mean, we, we may like, at first I was like, okay, well this has got to be two different groups of people. You know, one group is talked and described as believing in Jesus. But then Jesus is going to switch. He's going to pivot and look at a different group of people and it's them that don't believe in Him that in the end want to cast stones in Him. And I tried to find a place where that would last, but it doesn't. This is the same group of people that He describes believing in Him and then stoning Him, or at least attempting to stone Him in the end. And so we have to consider what, what's happening here. It seems to be that there is a superficial fair-weather faith going on here in this passage. And they want to believe in Jesus so long as He doesn't go against uh, their assumptions of their own salvation, their own heritage, their own freedom, uh, their own views of God. So long as Jesus doesn't stir up the waters and, and, and go against their assumptions, they believe in Jesus. But as soon as Jesus starts saying some hard things that kind of contradict what they have come to believe uh, for a while, uh, they want to step back from Jesus. They begin questioning Jesus, and in the end, they go all the way to the point of wanting to stone Jesus. This is not something new. Uh, You could flip back to earlier in the Gospel of John, John chapter 2, In verse 23, where it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. They believed because they saw him do miracles and signs. They loved that part. That was great. But as soon as he began to open his mouth and begin to tell that he was the Son of God, Uh, that he was God himself. They didn't like that. And so Jesus, in verse 24, says, but Jesus, on his part, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Or you could flip over another couple pages. We could read in John chapter 6, verse 66. After this... After Jesus said, I'm the bread of life and and had that great discourse about no one can come to the Father except through me. No one can come to the Father unless my Father draws him. After saying those things, many of his disciples, not the twelve, but many of his disciples, those who were fair weather fans and believed in him with superficial faith, they turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus was used to this. John's been recording this for us. We understand this was the case for Jesus. This was uh, His ministry. And this is why Jesus would challenge people uh, in regards to their faith. And what we see in this passage is really these people contradicting Jesus and questioning Him with several things that, that hinder them from having true faith. Several pitfalls, if you will, uh, that 
that they fall into and that keep them from believing in Jesus. This passage is really going to speak to to all of us. It's going to speak to those who aren't Christians here this morning, encouraging you to come to faith in Jesus as He presents Himself, not the Jesus that you've heard of or or you want to believe or the one that you've assumed. It's going to challenge those of you who call yourself Christians, but when you apply this test that Jesus gives to your life, you realize you may not actually be one. And you may need to come to true saving faith in Jesus. It's going to challenge us as Christians, those of us who have repented and believed in this Jesus as presented in, in the Scriptures, to not fall back to uh, the world's ways or the ways that we used to believe, the things that we love, our freedom, um, our individuality even, our religion of sorts. It's going to incur- challenge us to uh, hold fast to the test that Jesus gives, which He gives us in verse 31. It's an if-then kind of test. If you look in verse 31, after Jesus um, saw that many were at least believing with a superficial faith, as John records, Jesus speaks to them and says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in Christ's word, Jesus says, then you will know that you are truly my disciples. And this is an abiding that, that goes on and on. It's not a once and for, uh, for all done. It's not if you abide it at one point, you're good to go. You can live however you want to live and believe whatever else you want to believe. But no, if, if you are abiding in Christ and in His Word, then you will have this assurance that you are truly His disciples. This is the test that you need to ask yourself today. Am I abiding in Christ and in His Word? If someone were to look at my life, would they describe me as one who abides in Christ and in His Word daily? Who depends upon Christ and His Word daily? who depends upon the Spirit's strength rather than their own strength daily? Am I one who abides in in Christ? And if so, then you have great assurance that you're truly His disciples. And Jesus goes on and says, not only that, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You'll know the truth. We need to realize that knowing the truth doesn't just happen by coming to gather with the church on Sunday morning. This is not just where we learn to know the truth uh, as a congregation. We know the truth more and more as we gather together, yes, on Sunday mornings, but we come to know the truth on Monday morning as well when we attempt to live that truth out. And we come to realize it is true. It is real. It is good. It is right. It does honor God. 
And so we come to know the truth as we abide on Sunday morning together with the church and as we abide on Monday morning when we follow and obey Him. And on Monday afternoon after that meeting with your boss or Monday afternoon after a whole day of class with that teacher, uh, even if it is your mom at homeschool, uh, you learn to abide and you begin to know the truth. And Jesus says, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And this is really where these Jews who had this superficial fair-weather faith at first begin to take offense uh, at Jesus. Uh, when He says that only those who abide in His Word. And let me just encourage you. I don't have time to get into it, but... Um, the, the, uh, John the Apostle, who's writing the Gospel of John, he also writes those three letters that bear his name at the end of the New Testament. And First John is filled with those kinds of little tests to give Christians great assurance of your faith and to challenge those who don't have genuine faith to actually repent and believe. Uh, 23 times I counted the word abide in 1 John alone. And we're just so happen to have 1 John in our Bible reading plan that was made six months ago. So let me encourage you to, to go and find that Bible reading plan and read 1 John this week to get a little bit uh, more taste of what Jesus is, is saying this week. But yes, it's this test that these Jews who had that superficial, fair-weather faith begin to take offense at. And, and what I want you to see in this passage, in these really three pitfalls that we'll see here, is that abiding in the truth of Jesus will save us from the pitfalls of our false assumptions. Abiding in Jesus Christ and in His Word will save us from the pitfalls of our own false assumptions. Our false assumptions of freedom. Our false assumptions of religion. And our false assumptions of authority. These Jews were doing what many of the, the, the characters, and, and specifically Jews up in the Gospel of John up to this point, had been doing. They had been thinking on a horizontal level, thinking really only physically uh, about spirituality, thinking only on a horizontal realm rather than thinking on a vertical realm. And so when Jesus says that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, they immediately go horizontal and think of slavery. They immediately go horizontal and they begin to think of their history and they begin to think of their current situation and they begin to challenge Jesus and, and they have this false assumption of freedom currently in their life. Look, look at verse 33. They answered Him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that you will become free? I don't know if you noticed or not, but 
but Pastor Graham picked several songs this morning that spoke of that freedom that we as Christians, we sing, we are free. And when we sing that we are free, that, that admits that we weren't free before. And so if Jesus says you'll be set free, he's essentially saying that you're enslaved now. And the Jews, thinking only horizont- horizontally, are saying, we're not slaves to anyone. What are you talking about? We're children of Abraham. And yes, in the past, our people were enslaved. They were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years under Pharaoh. Our people were even enslaved uh, during the Babylonian exile under Nebuchadnezzar and others. But we're not enslaved. Uh, We have freedom to worship as we want. We're enjoying freedom and prosperity right now. What are you talking about? will be set free. Again, they're thinking only of this horizontal level of freedom, not a vertical level of freedom. And so Jesus answered them with that great phrase, truly, truly, or I tell you the truth, amen and amen, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Jesus goes immediately horizontal. And he says, I'm not talking about being enslaved physically by another group of people. I'm talking about spiritual slavery. And every one of you, whether you're a, children, a child of Abraham or not, and you're a Gentile, which includes likely most of us, he says, everyone who's committed a sin is a slave to sin, which means everyone is born as a slave to sin. And this caught them off guard. This caught them off guard because they were thinking that they had freedom simply because they were children of Abraham and had a spiritual heritage. And I chose specific words for these three different sections regarding these false assumptions of freedom, Uh, and of religion and of authority, but really over all of them is this false assumption of family and heritage, uh, even ethnicity, that they thought their family, their heritage, their ethnicity gave them salvation, gave them a relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, no, just because you're born a Jew doesn't make you a child of God. Just because you're born in America. And many people would say, as Americans, we're one nation under God, land of the free, home of the brave. We are Christians. That doesn't make you a true child of God. And so Jesus is challenging their false assumption of family and freedom 2,000 years ago. And his words challenge our false assumptions of family and freedom as well. None of us here are Christians by birth. None of us are Christians here by family name. None of us are Christians here because of what country it says on our passport. For we would not attempt to stand before a holy and just God and whip, our, whip out our passport and show him our nation of citizenship there. For he would say, depart from me, for I never knew you. No, we are slaves 
to sin for each and every one of us was born in sin and each and every one of us has sinned against a holy and just and right God. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues on and, and he, um, he brings good news um, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. Saying of Israel, you're a slave, you're not a true son, and you will not remain in this house forever. Only true sons remain forever. And so Jesus gives them good news and says, so if you're enslaved, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. At this point, claiming that he himself is the son of God, and if he sets them free, they will be free indeed. This was good news for them, that they could be free. Not, un, not living under this false assumption of freedom and, and only being able to sin, but because that's what slavery does. It chains you to sin. You're only able to sin for this lifetime, but Jesus said, I'll set you free. Free to actually do what is right and what honors God. Free to do what glorifies Him and what satisfies you. Freeing us. D.A. Carson writes of this well in his commentary on this passage. He says, True freedom is not the liberty to do anything that we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because doing what we are now pleases us. Sadly, Jesus challenges them. Having said that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He says, I know that you are physically offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word finds no place in you. Remember what the test that Jesus gave back in verse 31? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And Jesus is saying, you've failed the test. My word does not abide in you. My word finds no place in you. And I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Essentially hinting at what he'll get at in the next paragraph, that you think that Abraham's your father, and by virtue of Abraham that God is your father, but neither are truly your father. Neither of them are, are truly their father. And this idea of enslavement, uh, it really challenged their false assumption of, of freedom. And yet this is how the rest of the New Testament goes on to describe those who are true sons of God. Those who have truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. The New Testament says that we're all slaves to sin, but we're set free in Christ to become, Romans 6.22, slaves to God. And, Romans 6.18, slaves to righteousness. We're encouraged in the New Testament not to fall back to be slaves of sin, Galatians 5.1. And not to use our newfound freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, Galatians 5.13. 
Romans 8.2 would go on to say, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We could read in Titus 3, verses 3-6, through how we are described in many different ways, but specifically even as slaves. But that because of God's own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, we have come to know true life. This is how Jesus saw true faith. This is how the New Testament writers saw true faith. They saw that those who had true faith had gone from being slaves to sin to being slaves to God. Joyful slaves to God. And it's those kind of truths and reality that throughout history have even given physical slaves on this earth spiritual hope even if they would never receive physical freedom. As I was thinking about this passage this week, I even talked with another pastor friend who preaches predominantly to Hispanics, many of which are from uh, Cuba and other Central American countries that don't experience the freedom that we have here in America and, and said how rich these kinds of passages are for them. He's specifically preaching in First Peter uh, and how Peter uses that language uh, of, of slavery as well. And it may, makes me, though, think about our own history, even in America and uh, with our, our dark history of slavery as well. And it, I thought about a uh, historical biography, uh, historical even fiction, part fiction biography regarding a, 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 one of the most famous preachers ever, Charles Spurgeon, and a, uh, a slave here in America, and how their paths ended up crossing uh, as this slave Thomas in America came to faith in Jesus and was uh, eventually got his freedom and, and traveled to England to study under Charles Spurgeon to become a pastor to preach and herald the good news to, to all who could listen. And, and it's during this time when Thomas um, was hearing the gospel on an American plantation that, that I was reminded of. I went and found this section of the story, and it reads like this. The master, he owns everything about us. Or let me say that this is as Thomas. He's attempting to escape the plantation and the slavery to enjoy freedom. And on his way off the plantation, he sees a group of uh, people gathering in uh, one of the buildings there uh, and is invited over to hear what's being talked about. And as he gets there, a man named Ezekiel is preaching. He says, the master, he owns everything about us, but there is something you can't ever forget. There is one thing that man can't own. There is one thing that man can't ever own. He can't own your soul. Several of the slaves moaned quietly in agreement, gent gently rocking back and forth to the slow, rhythmic cadence of the whispering preacher. There's another master, and this master, he the master of this whole world, he's the one that your soul really belongs to, and his name is Jesus. 
Some of you picked tobacco today. Some of you washed dishes and clothes today. A couple of you even took a whipping from the foreman today. You might, eat, might be thinking to yourself, I ain't never going to get out of this place. I ain't never going to know what it is like to be a free man, a free woman. Some of you have been thinking, I ain't never going to know what it's like to do what I want to do, to be who I want to be, to go where I want to go. And truth be told, the bad news is that may never change, he says. You and me, we very well may live our entire lives in these chains. Ezekiel paused, filled his lungs, straightened his back, but here's the good news. You can be free, really free, right here, right now, no matter where you are, no matter what you do, no matter what kind of chains you carry in with you. Thomas sat back, barely breathing, hanging on every word of his friend. He listened as if he were hearing a great and powerful secret for the first time, one that had been kept from him until now and was then suddenly revealed in all of its beauty and glory. And Ezekiel once again looked at Thomas, wide-eyed and passionate, like no one else in the room, and spoke the words that would forever change the life of Thomas Johnson. Jesus sets slaves like us free. He may not take away the chains from your hands and your feet. He may never let you off this plantation. But Jesus will do something even better than that. He will take off the chains from your heart. He'll take off the chains from your heart. This is exactly what Jesus is saying to these Jews. I know you're not slaves right now physically slaves like your forefathers were in Egypt or were in Babylon but you're a slave to sin because we've all sinned and Jesus offered them freedom if the son sets you free you will be free indeed do not let our freedom in America or our freedom of choice in this life, keep you from submitting and following Jesus. Do not let the freedoms that we enjoy make you think that you're not a slave to sin. For we all are slaves to sin, and we only find freedom through repentance of that sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And we need to look to Him and trust in Him. So they have this false assumption of family over all of these things, but a false assumption of freedom. They also had a false assumption of religion there in verse 39. When Jesus said to them that in verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father, they're offended again. They were offended at the idea of freedom. Now they're offended at the idea of a different father and they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your, your father did. Jesus said, if, if you really truly were a child of Abraham, then you would be doing what Abraham did. 
the works that Abraham did. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what are the works that Abraham did that they should have been doing? And it's hard not to see throughout even the Old Testament and the New Testament that what Abraham is praised for is not a leaving, simply leaving of his country, a, simple, a certain works or a top ten list of works to do or anything like that. What Abraham was known for was faith. The Bible says in the Old Testament, Genesis 15, 6, and is quoted multiple times in the New Testament, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The, these Jews want to go back and say, Abraham's our father, and we have followed in Abraham's works by being circumcised, if you will, and following the commandments that came later, if you will. But Jesus is saying, no, there was something that Abraham did before he was circumcised, and that was believe, have genuine, true faith, which is one reason why the Apostle Paul will go on to say that faith is even more important than even Jewish circumcision uh, in that day. This is why Paul would go on to say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Not just sons of with a physical lineage and heritage from Abraham. But sons of faith are true children of Abraham. And later in Galatians 3.29, Paul writes, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Another if-then kind of test. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Jesus and Paul, both Jews, the greatest Jew, Jesus, maybe the second greatest Jew, Paul, are saying our Jewish heritage, our Jewish religion doesn't mean anything if we don't put our faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one, as the Christ, the anointed one, as the Savior of all who would repent and believe. It means nothing. Jesus is challenging their false assumption of religion, just being born of Abraham and who their father was, and says, you have another father. They didn't like that, uh, as is seen in uh, the middle of verse 41. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. There's several different suggestions of what are, what are they meaning by saying we were not born of sexual immorality. Are they going all the way back to Abraham having a child with his servant Hagar and saying Ishmael was not the child of promise, Isaac was the child of promise, and we're children of Isaac, not of sexual immorality. Or maybe they're saying to Jesus, we're not children of sexual immorality like you, Jesus, whose mom, who was born of a virgin while, you were engaged, while your dad was engaged to your mom, or maybe even likening to 
the Samaritans that they'll bring up later, saying, they, we're not like that. We're not like the Samaritans who were born in sexual immorality, marry, intermarrying with people of other religions. No, we have God as our Father, one God. Well, Jesus says to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? And rather than waiting for the answer, Jesus answers, It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Again, Jesus goes back to that test. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And Jesus says, you cannot even bear to hear my word. Not only does it not abide in you, you don't don't even want to hear it in your ears. Jesus condemns them and says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus, or or these Jews who had superficially believed in Jesus at first, are now second-guessing that because they're holding fast that Abraham is their father. And Jesus is saying, no, you need to go back further in the family tree. Abraham, yes, in one sense, is your father, but you need to go even further back and realize that Adam was your first father. And he fell prey to the lies of the devil, and everyone born after Adam and Eve was born into the slavery of sin, and therefore are children of Adam first and foremost, who Genesis 3.15 says are then the offspring of Satan. We are described, all humanity, this isn't a Jewish problem, some people, some Jewish Authorities and some theologians would even say this is anti-Semitic and and that this entire chapter needs to be thrown out of the Bible. And, And if that's the case, much of the New Testament needs to be thrown out of the Bible. And what they don't realize is that this isn't anti Jew, this is anti human. I mean, this is slandering every human that's ever been born because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we need God's grace in our lives to rescue us and and save us. Jesus says, Abraham's not your father. Adam was your first, first father, and he sinned. And because he sinned, and everyone else is born in sin, you are of your father, the devil. And so you deal in lies, just like your father, Satan, does. And so in verse 45, Jesus says, But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus is speaking the language of truth. They're speaking the language of their father, which is lies. They don't understand a second language. You understand what I'm saying? Just like me. You speak Spanish to me, I don't understand. Jesus is speaking truth to them, they don't understand it because they only speak in their original language of of lies and false assumptions. 
Which one of you convicts me of a sin? Jesus opens himself up and says, which one of you? Not just slanders me and says that I've sinned, but which one of you can convict me of a sin? Which one of you could put me on the stand and rightly convict me of sin? Of which there was no one that could. And Jesus says, if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Which earlier he had said, you don't even want to hear my word, which means you're not of God. And the reason why, he says in verse 47, you do not hear them is that you are not of God. A harsh rebuke from Jesus. A strong challenge from Jesus that they were not of God. That they were not even, not only does the word of God not abide in them, but they don't even want to hear the word of God. Jesus has challenged, secondly, now their false assumption of religion as if it came from simply being born in Abraham's family. And it doesn't. And Jesus is challenging that. And as he challenges their superficial faith and their fair weather Uh, being a fair-weather fan of Jesus at the beginning, all of that's beginning to wash away as Jesus is speaking more and more. And it, it ends with this in verse 48, this challenge to their false assumption of authority. Their false assumption of authority, or I could have said a false assumption of, of Jesus's identity. Because they break out and answer Jesus in verse 48 and says, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's the harshest thing that they could think of in that moment. Calling Jesus a Samaritan, whom were the enemies of the Jews because they had intermarried with the Assyrians and taken in their religion and practices and all of that. And so they call Jesus a Samaritan at this point, or say that he has a demon, or even worse, both, they say. And this may remind us of C.S. Lewis's uh, statement that in dealing with Jesus, we must say that he's either a liar, which Jesus already said, I'm not a liar, your father is a liar, a lunatic, we could say a Samaritan with a demon, or he's Lord. And and it's this false assumption of the wrong identity and authority of Jesus that they have that Jesus is challenging. In verse 49, Jesus answered them, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Again, truly, truly, I tell you the truth. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word. Now, again, let's go back to the test. Verse 31, if anyone abides in my word, he is truly my disciple. How does Jesus phrase it here? If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. How, how is that possible? 
If anyone keeps my word, not only is he truly my disciple, but Jesus adds to that and says that he will never see death. What does Jesus mean? Again, is Jesus talking on a physical, uh, horizontal realm? Or is he talking on a spiritual, vertical realm? The Jews think only horizontally and physically, and we must force ourselves to think spiritually and vertically. For the writer of Hebrews helps us with this. When Jesus says, if you keep his word, you'll never taste death, how is that possible? The writer of Hebrews writing to the Jews says in Hebrews 2.9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with what? Glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Why? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. If you keep Christ's word, you will not taste death. Why? Because Christ tasted death for you. In your place, as your substitute, atoning for your sins. You don't have to fear physical death because you know you have spiritual eternal life waiting for you. What good news this is. But the Jews are thinking only physically. In verse 52, the Jews said to him, now, now we know you have a demon. I mean, we thought you were crazy before. We thought you were a whack job before. No, now we know. There's something wrong with you. You've got a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Jesus is saying, I'm not here about myself. I'm here about my Father. And my Father is honoring and glorifying me, but I'm here to honor and glorify my Father. The New Testament would go on to say that God the Father honored and glorified Jesus at his baptism when God spoke over him and said, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus prays later in John 17, Now, God, honor and glorify your Son as Jesus was about to go to the cross. Jesus continues and says, But you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Essentially saying, Abraham rejoiced and believed in the promises that God would send a Messiah and a Savior to save. And Abraham, even being alive to this day with God, he saw it, it says, and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? 
And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And up to this point, they could handle themselves. I mean, they could ridicule Jesus. They could question Jesus. They could take off that hat and jersey and throw it all away and say, I, never mind, I, th- I was team Jesus before, not anymore, not with this kind of craziness. This guy's got a demon. I'm not team Jesus anymore. But when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, all of a sudden they're like, oh, no, you didn't. And they just start picking up stones to go at him. I mean, wh- why? Why at that, such a simple statement would these former believers who loved listening to Jesus caused them to pick up stones and want to start throwing them at him. Well, it's because Jesus, in that really small little phrase, I am, said, essentially, I'm God. I am God. I am specifically the Son of God. Jesus was using the same statement that God used back in Exodus 3.14 when Moses said, Who shall I say is sending me back to Egypt to deliver all of those people out of slavery? Who is sending me? And out of the fiery bush, God said, I am who I am. Jesus, in this moment, having already said that you're a slave to sin, having already said you could be set free from sin and not face death if you would abide in my word and hear my word and keep my word and believe my word, Jesus says, I am. I am the same one that delivered your people out of slavery, physical slavery in the past, and I'm the one offering you deliverance from spiritual slavery now if you'll just take it. But they wouldn't have any of it. They didn't want any of that, and so they began to pick up stones to begin to throw at him. They go from believing in him to wanting to stone him. And as I was thinking about this, the, 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 the verse, uh, there, there's a verse in um, the Gospel of Matthew that that came to mind as, as I was thinking uh, of this desire to stone Jesus and even this idea with Abraham as your father. And it's interesting that the stones that these individuals picked up to throw at Jesus, the Bible says, are actually closer to being genuine sons of Abraham than the individuals that are throwing them. For Matthew chapter 3, verse 9 says, Do not presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Do not presume that just because of your American freedom, or your family, or your citizenship, or your religion, Uh, that you grew up in or your view of Jesus is what is going to save you. Jesus says none of those things are going to save you. You want to know that you're saved? Abide in my word. 
And some of Jesus' very first words when he began ministry were repent and believe. Follow me. Deny yourselves. Take up your cross and follow me. This is what Jesus has called us to. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, I can't urge you enough to not presume on your own works, your own family, or your own former religion to save you. Rely upon Jesus and his word and what he has said of himself and what he has said of following him. If you call yourself a Christian, apply that test to your life. And and if it proves well in you, then you'll have great assurance for the day, the week, the month, the years ahead. But if not, it may force you to pause today and repent. Repent of falling back to thinking that a certain freedom you enjoy makes you better than others. A certain family heritage or religion that you call your own makes you better than others. It doesn't. Jesus says we've all sinned and therefore we're all enslaved to sin. And so as Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Enjoy that freedom that Christ alone offers. As we sang just before the sermon, John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that if there are any fair weather fans or superficial faith among us, Lord, that they would not throw their hat down and tear off that jersey and pick up stones to stone what stone you and what the Scriptures say about you this morning, but instead would humble themselves and bow their knees before you, trusting you alone to save them. God, I pray that if there are any who, before coming into this place, wouldn't even consider themselves a fair-weather fan of Jesus, would realize that not only should they uh, not, uh, shouldn't just be a fair-weather fan, but they should be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ because He alone is God, specifically the Son of God, who was sent from God to die on the cross for the sins of all who would believe, to rise from the dead, to offer all who believe in Him eternal life. Lord, I pray for those who have trusted in you that they would be assured this morning having tested their abiding, making sure that their faith is not in freedom, not in a religion, but that their faith is in you, Jesus, and you alone, for you alone set us free. Lord, help us to abide in your word 
Help us to keep your word. Help us to continually listen and hear your word that we might abide even longer. Lord, have your way in us as individual Christians, but in us as your church. I ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.